Hear the good news. We were once in rebellion with God, but he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. We were once enemies of God, but he has made peace with us by the blood of his cross. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. Let all God's people say, Amen. Amen. The reading of God's word this morning begins in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, because the enemy has spoken against you, aha, and the everlasting heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord Yahweh. For good cause they have made you desolate and crushed you from every side, that you should become a possession of the rest of the nations. And you have been taken up in the talk and the whispering of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys, to the desolate wastes and to the forsaken cities, which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations which are round about. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath because you have endured the insults of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, I have sworn that surely the nations which are around you will themselves endure their insults. But you, O mountains of Israel, you will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be cultivated and sown. And I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel, all of it. And the cities will be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. And I will multiply on you man and beast, and they will increase and be fruitful. I will cause you to be inhabited as you were formerly, and will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am Yahweh. Yes, I will cause men, my people Israel, to walk on you and possess you, so that you will become their inheritance and never again bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Because they say to you, You are devourer of men, and have bereaved your nation of children. Therefore you will no longer devour men, and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord Yahweh. And I will not let you hear insults from the nations any more, nor will you bear disgrace from the peoples any longer, 
nor will you cause your nation to stumble any longer, declares the Lord Yahweh. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout their lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, These are the people of Yahweh, yet they have come out of his land. But I had, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says Yahweh God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God." Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, that you may not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord Yahweh. Let it be known. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. And the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passed by. And they will say, This desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are, fort are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, Yahweh, have rebuilt in the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, Yahweh, have spoken and will do it. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. We'll turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 
There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth." you would please turn to the back of your bulletin, we'll read together as a congregation, Psalm 8. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning again. For those of you who did not miss me, we've been gone for the last couple weeks, if you didn't notice. Um, my family and I were in Minnesota for the first of those weeks, so I had planned a work trip and took the family along with. We stayed with some very generous friends of ours. They were quite good hosts. We did not repay them in kind because uh, most of that week went well. And our intention was on the way back, we were going to have a, a bit of a miniature vacation. So I had booked some non-refundable, you'll see why that's funny in a minute, uh, hotels along the way with some planned stops that were supposed to delight my children. And uh, towards the end of that work week, which was going well, uh, we had an unexpected visitor, uh, which was vomiting. Um, I assume that we brought that nasty disease from here to Minnesota, but I don't know. Well, it quieted down uh, when we were supposed to leave, and being fools, we decided to press on. And uh, we pressed on to the Embassy Suites in St. Louis. I would advise that you not go there for a year. We defile the room. And I don't remember the number to warn you which one. We finally came to grips with reality and uh, got in the car to head home, cutting, cutting that bit of it short. And uh, 
the way home, there was much fruit and multiplication of that wretched uh, liquid. And along the way, when we're, when we're driving, I, I like driving. I listen early in the morning to what I want to listen to. And then when the kids wake up, uh, we, we usually bring a book to listen to. And this time the book was uh, Pollyanna. I don't know if you, know if you remember that story, but Pollyanna was a little girl who was infectious in her gladness. Her father had taught her that there were 800 texts in the Bible that taught rejoicing and thankfulness, and she took that to heart. And so along that story, she's perpetually finding reasons to be glad. And so, of course, as we're driving home, we were attempting uh, to follow suit. My, my remaining stalwart healthy ones in the front seat with me were listening attentively, and and it came to me that I could be thankful because I also was sick, had been sick uh, for a few days now, so it had progressed to a wonderful point of being unable to smell or hear very well. And so the trip home was actually better for me than for most of the rest of the family. So there's, there's a reason to give thanks. Our text this morning, we're beginning the epistle to the Colossians, and like many of Paul's epistles, he begins with a greeting and then a prayer of thanksgiving. And uh, that, that prayer of thanksgiving, it's, it's, it's there for a reason. Almost all of his epistles begin this way. We're going to see how that thanksgiving, how his particular thanksgiving fits within the message to the Colossians this morning. But if you would first, bow with me in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning. We are your people. We need to hear from your word. We are the fools and the sinners and the wanderers who need you. And so as we call upon you, we pray that you would hear us, that you would speak to us. We want the word of truth, your gospel, to penetrate in our lives and to bear fruit. And so we pray for this blessing. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So before we get into Colossians, I want to read the first section, but uh, I'm going to give you a basic outline. We'll fill it out as we go through the book, but the the overall outline is is quite simple. There's a a functional uh, path through through the epistle of Colossians. It begins and ends with greetings, so they're they're mirrored in one another. So verses 1 and 2 is a typical Pauline greeting in which he, he, he greets the con- congregation with grace and peace. And then he ends with individual greetings from all those that are with him and, uh, and messages, messages to, to those that are not. In between, we have the bulk of the, le- of the letter. And the rest of chapter 1, verses 3 through... Uh, sorry, not quite the rest. Verses 3 through 23 are, uh, are a prayer. So Paul begins with a prayer. And the prayer moves from thanksgiving to petition and then gives gives way back into praise. And we'll, we'll look at that, that structure a little bit today. And then Paul gives his purpose, starting in, in chapter 1, verse 24, and, and moving through chapter 2, verse 5. So he moves from his general purpose in God's plan to the specificities of what God has called him to, particularly to the, the church at Colossae. And then... His admonition, the plea that, that builds out the bulk of the letter, begins in chapter 2, verse 6, and, and moves through chapter 4, uh, chapter four verse 6. And so that, that's the structure. We move from, from, prayer, uh, from, from prayer to uh, purpose, to plea, 
Uh, I think this is the second time I've done this on accident. I'm, I'm not much into the alliterating outlines, but once again, I'm going to throw a bone to those of you who are. So prayer, purpose, plea. We're moving then through this epistle to the Colossians. Now, we, we begin, and Paul, of course, is writing this. Uh, people debate that for no good reason. Uh, so we won't go into, into those things. But Paul... Paul describes himself here as in some of his other epistles as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's a sent one, a messenger from Christ, and particularly he's a messenger by the will of God. And we can attach that will, so the will of God, to his will in making him an apostle, and that is certainly true. But I think there's, there's more entailed here in that Paul, as he opens this letter, he's writing to them as, a, as an apostle to people that we're going to see he hasn't met. He's, he's never met these people. And he's writing in his purpose, his position, and his entire life is subsumed in the will of God, and it's driving towards an end. It's not just that God specifically wills that Paul be an apostle. It's that within the grand will of God, as he's moving all of creation along, along the spectrum toward, toward maturity, Paul has his appointed place and time within that will. And we'll see that throughout this book, Paul does this. He, he takes us up to kind of the the big uh, overview level of what God is doing, and then brings us back down. And, and this is, I think, important for us. We spend a lot of time trying to find and, and retell the story of God's people, the story of, of, of the Bible, because we need to know it. And if, if we don't know it, we become unhinged from what God is doing. And you can, you can see this work itself out in all different kinds of churches, and the, the, the error can work itself in, in different kinds of ways. So that if, if you're a very, um, um, a, a church that emphasizes proclamation of the gospel, you can become unhinged where you pluck people out of the fire, but then put them in, a, in, a, in nothingness. You, you, you take away the demons and then leave an empty spot. But we can also struggle on, on the other side where we become unhinged from from our story in, in God's plan, or, or we can overemphasize the story and forget that we have a particular spot in it, such that by simply retelling the story of God's people and what God is doing and recounting the story, we come to believe that we're active in it. But in, in fact, we do have a spot and a specific participation in God's plan, and so we, we need both the high-level view of all that as God has done since the creation of the world, where it's going, and then narrowed down for us in the 21st century, what are we doing here in McKinney? And you can see that in the introduction because he's writing to those that are found in Christ and in Colossae. So there's parallel spheres of existence. They both exist in, in Christ, and we can all say that. We share that heritage with the saints in Colossae 2,000 years ago. We're in Christ, but we're not in Colossae. So in, in some senses, we read this letter, we're, we're bystanders. We share the in Christ part, but we don't share the in Colossae part. So we have, to, we have to hear the message of Jesus Christ by the will of God through Paul the Apostle to the church at Colossae 2,000 years ago and see what God is telling them, their part, their purpose, and their warning within God's plan and then come back and say, all right, how does, what, what does that mean for us 2,000 years later, not in Colossae, not, not, not anywhere near it, 
And our struggles are different, our temptations are different, and, and yet in some ways the same. So we'll, we'll be taking a look at that as we work through, through this book. So Paul writes, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and he adds Timothy, our brother. He does this on most of his books. He, he adds a, uh, a co-author, a, kind of a silent partner. You might ask why he does this. and I, I think the reason is that he's bringing forth two or three witnesses in his admonition. So he, he's teaching, he's proclaiming, and it's Paul and Timothy. And then the or three we have by the will of God. God is speaking with them, through them, to, to this church. And so we have then this emphasis. Pay attention. Verse 2, he writes to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. So he's writing then to, to this, this two descriptions, the saints. We've talked much about that. Saints is uh, as much spatial as a, a description as anything else. To be a saint is to be one who is brought near to God, who has access into the sanctuary, and that's going to play a large role in this epistle. Um, and then the faithful, so those who have faith, who've been persuaded, and there's a sense of loyalty there, the kind of loyalty that we learned about in Psalm 15. So those who draw near into the sanctuary and who are faithful, who are attached to Christ, those brothers, that's who he's writing to in Christ, in Colossae, and then we are standing off, given this word by God, just like the Laodiceans who will also read this letter, they had to read it as written to the Colossians and then interpret it for themselves. He writes to them, then grace to you and peace from God our Father. And so his standard introduction, grace and peace, if you think about that, that introduction, it spans, it spans God's plan in us. He begins with grace. And he's moving us forward in time, both as individuals and as a people, towards peace. And so this is a, a, a assumed greeting. We can greet one another this way because we're greeting one another then with the confidence of the entire story of what God is doing in and through us. He's bringing grace and he's bringing us along towards peace. Peace with him and peace with one another. So grace and peace to you from God our Father, and it's not then written from Paul, it's given, and we greet one another then with this same way, with a greeting given from God. He's the one that supplies the grace and peace. Okay, so who were the Colossians? You won't find them in, uh, in Acts. Instead, the, the closest you're going to get is in Acts chapter 19. Paul spends three years in Ephesus, and it's 100 miles, it's 100 miles to the west of Colossae. And there's three, there's three cities in the Lycus Valley, 100 miles, uh, 100 miles east of Ephesus. It's Colossae, uh, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, and they're, they're kind of sister cities. The main road used to run through Colossae, and it had moved so that Laodicea and Hierapolis sprung up. So Colossae is kind of a has-been city. They're on the decline in the, in the spectrum of time. And Paul, Paul doesn't go there. We find out kind of midway through the book that he hasn't met these people. He hasn't seen them face to face. Instead, 
As he's spending time in, in uh, Ephesus, it seems that one of the, a citizen of Colossians um, was taught by him. So he, he knows Epaphras, who is one of their number. And Epaphras becomes the pastor, teacher of this new foundling church. We can find that in, in chapter 1, verse 7. So you learn then the gospel of truth from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant. So Epaphras has taught this, this group of believers. They've never met Paul. And then in the sequence of time, Epaphras has found his way back to Paul. And uh, we find that at the end of the book in, in chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who's one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So Epaphras is back with Paul. He's brought back a report of what's happening in Colossae. And in fact, Colossians is one of the prison epistles, and we find out in the book of Philemon that Epaphras is also in prison with him. So he's come back, and whether that's Ephesus or Rome, we don't know which prison time it was. Epaphras is, is gone from their midst, and, and now he's stuck with Paul in prison. So we don't know the length of that time. We, we don't know quite when that is, but as he's telling Paul about this new church, and the, the wonderful things that God is doing, there's a danger. And you can see that this danger is even more present because their teacher is gone from their midst. So the one who taught them the word of truth is gone and he's in chains. And so the book of Colossians, Paul is writing to this people that he hasn't met. He's rejoicing over them and then he's giving them a warning. Not because they've sinned already, but because there's danger. And this... This danger is, I would say, normal. So we're, we're going to dive into this over the next few weeks. But I'll just to introduce what, what's happening here, I want you to keep in mind this church is relatively young. And think about what's, what's going on. If you are a New Testament believer, you've been listening to all of the Old Testament. You, you listened to Ezekiel 36 that we read this morning about what God is doing through the new covenant, you've seen Jesus come, die, raise again, and you've heard of what he said to the disciples that you're going to go into all the world, Judea, Jer Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and, and out to the ends of the earth. And now here you see that the gospel is, in fact, spreading. It's exciting. It should be. You're seeing what Jesus said come true. Think, think about Acts chapter 19, Paul's in Ephesus, and in in chapter 19, in fact, the pagans are complaining because they, they say that, all right, Paul's, Paul's here in Asia Minor and he's taught so much and so many have listened that the word of God has been heard by everybody in all of Asia. Well, of course, Paul didn't teach them all, but Paul taught and then out from him went these teachers so that you have churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis and Colossae and, and out into the outermost regions so that the, the gospel work is spreading and we're going to see in, in verse 6 that he, he says that it's gone out, it's bearing fruit, and it's increasing. Now, if you're a New Testament believer, that should, that should sound thrilling to you. Because this means that God's purposes are coming to fullness. You see that, that it's not just words that Jesus spoke. Everything from Genesis till now is coming true, and you're living in the age of fulfillment. So you have this new church, a grandchild church. So this isn't first generation 
Instead, we have a new set of believers. And uh, there's a danger. There's a danger for a new generation of believers. And that danger occurs every time. With the young people, we've been going through Genesis. And one of the things I impress upon them is that there's this repeated pattern in Scripture as God brings his people to maturity of uh, lessons that they have to learn. Or there's, there's kind of corresponding failures and, um, and tests that, that go together. And so the first of those, you, you can see with Adam, he's called to wait upon God. He's called to patience and endurance, to trust in him as a father. And then as you move on in time, and with Cain and Abel, there is a, a new test. They're called to, uh, to, fight, to fight well. So war righteously, love your brother. And you see this reflected in the kingdom, kingdom of Israel, this brother-to-brother conflict, this new, new test in how to move forward. If you, if you first trust God, now take it to somebody that's sitting in front of you and see how you're going to deal with them. And then in the third cycle, we move out into all the worlds. How do you... How do you effectively move into the world and love the world without being stained by the world? So how can you make the world holy instead of the world making you defiled? And we, we see that story in the negative at the beginning of Genesis with, uh, with the sons of God and the daughters of men intermingling. And so there's failure in that sin. They fail to learn that, that message. And you see it in the positive at the end of the book of Genesis with Joseph going out and instead of him being defiled... He saves the world out, out in Egypt. Well, here in Colossians, we're beginning at the beginning. If James is a story about brother-to-brother conflict, Colossians is, is a story about a new church with the early deceptions that Satan brings to every new believer and every new generation. If you consider our group of believers here at, at McKinney Bible Church, this church has been around now for, I don't know, 40, 45-some years. So young in the grand scheme of things, but it's now a new, a new generation. So the old is passing away and a new is coming and we will have the same lessons to learn, the same temptations, but they take new forms. And so if you, if you look at the book of Colossians, so flip, flip forward to chapter 2. We'll come, we'll come back to the beginning here in just a second. You can see... Um, Look in chapter 2, verse 4. Paul's writing to them, and he says, This is my purpose. I say these things to you so that no one may delude you with persuasive arguments. I don't want anybody to trick you, to deceive you. Even though I'm absent in body, I'm present with you in the spirit. I rejoice to see your good discipline, the stability of your faith in Christ. So I want you to walk in Christ Jesus our Lord, just as you received him, firmly rooted being built up in him and established in your faith as you were instructed, overflowing with gratitude. And see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception. See to it that no one deceives you. So all the way back in the beginning, Adam's in the garden. He's just a child, even though he has the body of a man. And Satan works his work of deception on Adam and Eve. And the purpose is to steal them away from their trust in the Father. Notice throughout Colossians there is an emphasis on God the Father. So his purpose is to steal them away from that faith. Now what I want to point out to you is, we'll get down to the details later, 
But if you look at how Satan is trying to deceive this young church. So look forward to verse 16. He says, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? If you think about the deception that Satan worked on Adam, or the deception that he worked on the young nation of Israel, in form, it was exactly the opposite of the deception that he's working on this young church. So when God told Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree, Satan came in and said, well now, ought you to not taste that or touch that? But here, here the deception looks different. Now the deception is, Listen up, don't taste, don't handle, don't touch. How, well, how can, these, how can these things be? You see, if we're going to listen to the message of the Colossians, we have to listen to it then in context because Satan can deceive both by saying, eat, touch and eat, go in, you're free, and by saying, don't go in, don't eat, don't taste, don't touch. Both can be deceptions. And so we have to understand where we're at and then also where we might be tempted to walk away from Christ in order to appropriately apply this book. So I'll let you think about that. I want to tease that out over a couple of weeks because I think the text will help, help um, bring, it, bring it to bear for us. But in this church, Paul's warning them because it's possible that they'll be deceived and fall away. And their deception is centered then around don't taste, don't touch, don't handle, don't believe you have what God has already given you. But we don't begin there. So if you would turn back to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look then at verses 3 through 8. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it, and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul begins his prayer here, as is his habit, with thanksgiving. 
he begins his epistle with thanksgiving. And this thanksgiving isn't just relegated to the beginning of the book. In fact, we'll see, as I already mentioned, the first part of the prayer is thanksgiving. So 3 through 8 is thanksgiving. Then Paul moves in verses 9, 9 through 12 to petition. But the end of his prayer also gives, gives way back into thanksgiving and praise. And in fact, if you look in verse 11, the very petition that he's making, so he, he wants them to be filled up with the knowledge and the wisdom of God. He wants them to have all the riches that God has promised. Remember, there's this deception out there. You don't have them. You don't have them yet. You need to do something. He says, I want you to be filled up with this knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, so that you may be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. We don't, we don't usually think about it this way, but the end of Paul's petition for them is he wants them to be full of wisdom and knowledge so that they'll know the will of the Lord, so that they'll please him in every respect. And he goes through this list. How are you going to please the Lord? Well, the top of the list is that you'd be strengthened with the power of God so that you could give thanks. You see, the nature, the reason that Adam and Eve were susceptible to deception. Is because of a lack of contentment with where they were at in God's plan and purpose. God had set restrictions for them, and they wanted to then bypass those restrictions and hurry on towards the goal. And so because they failed to give thanks, they fell into sin. Thanksgiving is the first bulwark. If we live lives that are filled with thanksgiving, Paul's modeling it for us. It will transform who we are as Christians. I don't know what your prayer life looks like. Um, I heard one teacher put it this way. Often we, we, we think about praying, and so we feel like we've prayed. You sit down, and you think about how right it is to pray, and you let that go through your mind a little bit, and then maybe you fall asleep, or you drift off to other things, or you think about, maybe you even think about what God might do through prayer but you don't actually pray. The same thing happens with thanksgiving. We, we, we kind of feel thankful thoughts. You let them emanate out of your being. So I, I would encourage you as, as we think through this book, and, and thankfulness, it runs through the course of the book. Paul's, Paul's pushing the Colossians on to thankfulness. If you look in chapter 2, verse 6, we read that verse. He wants them to be overflowing with gratitude. Or you move forward to the end in chapter 4, the very end of it, when you cap off all of what God calls us to do, he wants them to pray with thankfulness. Because that, that attitude of thankfulness, since we should come to God and we say, you've made me, and I, I want to thank you for, for making me just as I am. It changes who we are. It changes our... Uh, our words running away from me today. Our, uh, we'll go with another one. Our, our, our weakness towards deception. And so one of, the, one of the ways that we can do that is say them out loud. Pray out loud. Write it down. Because confessing to God that he's given us everything and it's enough 
It changes our, our very being. And so Paul, he's modeling thanksgiving. He's modeling it for them. And I want to encourage you to that too. Don't just thank God for yourself, but thank God then for others. We need a bigger picture of what God is doing. Usually when we get bogged down in despair and sin, it's because we're looking only at ourselves. We're not thankful for what God has done. Instead, we're looking at the trial or whatever's right in front of us, and we have a, a, a really uh, a microscope looking at our lives, and we, we cultivate then bitterness and the kind of bile that came out in, in my car. What God says, be thankful. And so I want to look at this prayer then as a model for how we're to look around us and, and look at what God's work, what he's doing, and then trust that as we move forward in faith, I'm going to choose to be thankful. I'm, I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to get up. I'm going to thank God that he will protect us then from Satan's wiles, from the kind of deceptions we'll read about here. So then looking at this section, we'll find that its very purpose, every, everything about this prayer of thanksgiving is driven towards thankfulness. Once again, you can make a chiasm out of this. Those of you who don't like them will complain that you can find them anywhere. Well, maybe so. But uh, verse, verses 3 and 4, the beginning of 4, so we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. We find that in verse 9, he's, he's praying again. He's moving on to the petition. So we have this bookends of prayer, and he, he interjects the thankfulness into the, the beginning of his prayer. He, he begins with the intent to petition. He says, wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thank God. And he thanks them. He thanks God then because he heard about their faith in Christ Jesus, the love which they have for all the saints. That same love shows itself up in, in verse 8. Epaphras has informed us in, of your love in the Spirit. And then in the middle of this section, you find that the basis of all that's happening in them is because they've heard the word of the truth in verse 5, as communicated by Epaphras in verse 7. In the middle of this section, the generation source, the reason that Paul has something to be thankful about is verse 6. So I want to start then with, with verse 6. The word of truth, the gospel, has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even it has, as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it. So the root that produces thankfulness is the word of truth, the gospel, has come to the Colossians just as it has in the whole world. So Paul's looking out, he says, this is what's going on all around us. It's not just in Colossae in 50 to 60 AD, it's everywhere. The word of truth, the gospel is coming, and what's happening is it's bearing fruit and increasing. Those words are chosen on purpose. He repeats them, we, we read them in, uh, in verse 10. He's going to pray for them that they would bear fruit and increase. But it should make you think of Genesis 1. And uh, you'll get tired of how many times I refer to Genesis 1. But remember the mandate. God calls Adam and he says, this is what you're going to do. I want you to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Rule and subdue it. As you move through the covenantal structure in the Bible, what you'll find is that, that it's repeated. 
Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and increase. And at times in Israel's history, you see them doing exactly the opposite. But then God blesses them. He renews them. He refreshes them. And as we read about in Ezekiel 36 with the new covenant, they're being brought back into the land and he's multiplying. He's increasing them. We, you heard about it in Psalm 107 too. You begin with, with uh, the sailors, the drunken sailors on the, the roaring sea and, and God saves them. And then that word of truth uh, that they, they learn, it creates this multiplication, this increase. It's the story of the book of Acts, so that God added to their number 3,000 in a day, and then he kept adding souls unto the church. And so if you're Paul looking on, well, this is indeed a reason to be thankful because the root of what God has promised, that the earth would be filled up, that the, the, the job given to Adam is being accomplished now in his day before his very eyes and it's being done here by the word of truth the gospel well what is that word of truth so we're going we're to look at its effects here in just a second but that word of truth has gone forth he calls it the, the gospel the good news and it, come, it came to the Colossians, not through Paul, but through Epaphras. And now he sees it there, bearing fruit, increasing. It's like a plant growing up. It's flourishing. It's wonderful to look at. But the root is this word of truth, the gospel. Now, if you look at this word, and many of you will know this, you can study it from one side or the other. Um, from the biblical side, the, the, the word will come from Isaiah 40 or Isaiah 52. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Say to the cities of Judah, O Zion, bearer of good news. Say to the cities of Jerusalem, here is your God. Or Isaiah 52, how good are the, how lovely are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of peace, who say, your God reigns. From the other side, you can study it from the secular culture and you'll find that the good news, the word originated from the runner who would come back from a battle and bring the good news of the results. So if you're, if you're the village left behind, the wives and the children wondering whether you're going to be raped and killed, the, the runner comes back to proclaim victory and it's good news. Well, the good news has been proclaimed that Jesus is victorious He's seated on the throne and he's king. This is the word of truth, the good news. And that word of truth bears fruit. We can understand what that, what that means because if you're, when, when you're in the battle and you're uncertain, there's, it's life-changing. But then the word comes that the war is won. Now, there may be battles all around depending on the size of this war. You can read in the Old Testament, multiple kings and multiple wars all around. Well, the size of this war is cosmic, so there's battles all over the place. But the declaration is made that the king has won. Our God reigns. He's seated on the throne, and he is returning. This word of truth, this good news, bears fruit, and it multiplies. Now, the fruit in verse 5, this, it bears fruit of people, but the fruit specifically in verse, verses 4 and 5, that it bears within people. So this is, this is the mechanism by which 
the word of truth, the gospel works, is it, it creates three things, faith, love, and hope. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So the word of truth comes and the word of truth calls out the hope. Hope is, hope is in the future, right? Hope is, hope is what you're looking for. But the word of truth, the gospel says that that hope is secure. Jesus, the king, has been victorious over Satan in this cosmic battle. He's won. He's seated on the throne. He's seated right now in the heavenly. So that hope is laid up for you in heaven. We're going to find out because in chapter 1, verse 27, he says that we're working towards this hope of glory, which is Christ in you, Christ is seated in the heavenlies. That hope is laid away. So even though you still see the skirmishes all around you, Jesus is seated on the throne. The battle is won. And so this word of truth, the gospel, tells you that your hope is laid away. It's, re it's reserved in heaven. And there's this dichotomy then between what we see in heaven and we're waiting for heaven to come to earth. We're waiting to see the fullness of, of what that means. And all the deception is going to revolve around that. But that hope springs forth. So if you, if you look at the relationship between verse 4 and verse 5, Jesus is seated on the throne. We have the hope of Christ, of living and working within Christ our King. He'll bring justice. He'll bring mercy. He'll bring peace. That hope produces faith and love. Now, I've been harping on, on Hebrews 11. Faith is the essence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, because faith is the enactor of hope. The, the root means to be persuaded by, but that persuasion is to a person. It creates a loyalty to a person. So we hear this hope of Christ the King seated on the throne. We hear and believe and respond in faith. The persuasion creates action. So we act now as if Christ really is on the throne, and he is. We just can't see him. It's the evidence of things not seen. And so he hears of their faith. They're acting out in accordance with the hope of the risen, resurrected King, Savior, seated on the throne. That means they're, they're as he's going to pray in just a minute, because the things he's thankful for, he prays they get more of, that they're strengthened with his power. So these skirmishes are still going on because Satan's forces haven't heard the good news. They don't, they plug up their ears, they don't want to listen. And so they live out in faith. Jesus has won the victory. And together then you see the result of this. It produces the love which you have for all the saints. How does hope produce love? Well, what are we looking for? If our hope is fixed on Christ and the word of truth has come, the good news has come that our God reigns, that Jesus is the king, how does that promote the love of the saints. It was because we're looking forward to the surety of peace, a kingdom which has inhabitants, an inhabited city, Jesus on the throne, filled up with people. And so because of that hope, because we act on that hope, we love the saints. Now that's the relationship here. 
If you, if you look at these three words, they're not just found in Colossians. In fact, they're, they're found throughout God's word. Faith, love, and hope are a, a, a kind of triad of the qualities of God's people. We're characterized by faith, love, and hope. And the relationship between them seems to change. So if you think about 1 Corinthians 13, he calls us to faith, hope, and love, but love is the greatest of these because as we move forward in time, faith and hope disappear because we have it, but love remains. And here we see hope producing love, but in Romans chapter 5, love produces hope. Let me read that for you. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we have hope as God works in our midst. We look forward to the future. He's declared peace, and that hope produces love, and that love produces hope. And you see this circle, this spiral, in which these qualities are ours and are to be increasing, in which we grow in faith, love, and hope. And as we work this out within the body of God's people, and we love one another, that love produces more faith and more hope. And as we hope in the midst of one another, it produces more love. So that in Hebrews 13, we come with the full assurance of faith to be sprinkled clean, washed from our sins, and we come before the Father in hope to encourage one another to love and good deeds. And so you see, around and around we go, God is working through His Spirit in us to produce the fruit and then to increase the fruit of faith, love, and hope. And these three qualities are not just ours, they belong to God. God is the God of hope, Romans chapter 15. God is love, John chapter 4. God embodies these qualities. And so as we look forward to the, the, the future of life with him, so remember the Colossians are at the beginning, they're a young church. Satan is going to try to deceive them. They need their eyes fixed then on what God is doing. He's calling them as in all the world. He's building up his people, filled up with faith, love, and hope. All of these things. So if you, if you think about yourself, think about your life, are you filled with faith, love, and hope? And not just talking about them. Just like prayer, we can sometimes deceive ourselves into thinking that if we converse enough about these subjects, we actually have them. But... Are they ours? Do they belong to us? And are they increasing? Do we have an, a, a, a faith that, that sticks to God's word, that clings to Christ and looks to him and that will not turn away? And it's not just a faith that proclaims, as we found in, in James, but it's a faith that does. And so that as, as we do and we look at our brother in, in need, we're filled with love for him. Do we have that kind of love? Is it ours and is it increasing I want to encourage us as we think about this. These are, these are gifts from God, but they have a source here in Colossians 1. A source in the first part of Colossians is the word of truth, the gospel. So as we hear and are enriched by this good news, all-encompassing good news, because Jesus sitting on the throne isn't just a singular fact. 
It brings in the whole bearing of God's word and what he's doing. And as we're enriched by that truth, it will produce in us, if we don't plug our ears and close our eyes to the light and the message, it will produce in us faith, love, and hope. So Paul, he's looking on at this young church and he says, I see God's work. I see the faith, love, and hope. And he's going to pray and just, and just, we'll look at it next week. He's going to pray that these qualities would increase. So because they have the beginnings of them doesn't mean they're done. But instead, we have, we have the same thing. We need to look for faith, love, and hope. We need to look for the fruit of the word of truth within ourselves and within one another. And as we see it, we should give thanks. Because God is the one that produces that fruit. Now, I'll have more to say as we, as we come as to why he brings in Colossians, or, or Genesis 1, but uh, he's telling us that God has begun a new creation in Christ. And that new creation is, is, is coming out of Jerusalem and it's filling the world. And so we see 2,000 years later that that has happened. The work's not done, but we need to give thanks and move forward. So I want to encourage us in, in that work. So in the grand work of thinking about our part in this story, give thanks for what God is doing today here in, in our church among us. Give thanks to God this week out loud. Give thanks to God for one another, for what God is doing and producing in one another, these qualities of faith, love, and hope. And as we do, they will increase within us. If you'll please stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the repeated and simple but mature blessing that you give in your word to us, grace and peace. Lord, we pray that that blessing would be true in us, that you would fill us with the grace that comes from your word of truth and that you would move us on towards peace. We know that we have, we are in Christ. We have peace with you. We, we today can gather in your throne room. Lord, help us to pursue that peace with one another and by it together to be strengthened. Lord, we want to stand firm in your word to resist the wiles of the devil and to cling to you. So help us to fix our eyes on our Savior this week. And as we come to the table, Lord, we thank you we thank you for your good work in our midst. We thank you for feeding us. We thank you that you allow us to enter and that you've dressed us in robes that are, are filled with, with these qualities so that we come in with, with faith and love on our chest, as Paul says in Thessalonians, and hope as a helmet into the presence of God. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.